Are we on? Hello, can everyone hear me? Yes, we can. Oh, good, okay. All right, shall we begin? Bruce, are you in? Yes, I am. I'm in. And All right, good. Hear you loud and clear. All right. All right, let's start. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Zunaid Mullah, and as director of IFA, it is my very special pleasure uh, to welcome all of you to uh, this uh, discussion this afternoon. Um, our invitation to uh, this launch was extended to many officials across the political spectrum and included in the invitation list uh, are the uh, Office of the President, uh, the Minister in the Office of the President, uh, the Speaker of the House of Parliament, the Deputy Speaker, uh, the Speaker of the National Council of Provinces, uh, Honourable MPs and Committee Heads, and here in particular we want to mention Chief Longwa, um, with whom we've had some interaction during the past year. Uh, it has also gone to the Office of the Auditor General, and here of course it's only appropriate that we pay our tributes to uh, Kimi Makwetu, the late Kimi Makwetu, for his sterling work on uh, preparing the Auditor General's report every year. Um, and we hope that his legacy will continue to inform the work of the Auditor General um, in the years to come, um, because it is truly of a world standard. Um, since 1994, uh, we have received lavish praise for our constitution as a model for countries both in the developed and the developing world. Unfortunately, some of our institutions do not reflect the light that our constitution symbolizes. And it is, in, it is this that pained Professor Turok so much. In 2019, he took the initiative to look at why the legislative and executive arms were so weak in acting with regard to the looting of public funds. Just before his passing in December 2019, he put a research team together to probe the work of parliament and the executive with respect to the recommendations of the Auditor General. Um, we were very fortunate that as Professor Turok went out to look for partners in this venture, um, someone that came very readily to our aid was the Kingdom, the, the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. And we are very privileged today to have Ambassador Han Peters to join us. So Professor uh, Ambassador Peters, I'm going to ask you to please say a few words now. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Um, six weeks ago, the Dutch government had to hand in its resignation. Uh, why? Because it, it appeared that the Internal Revenue Service of the Netherlands 
had accused uh, thousands of parents of having committed fraud. And then it came out after a lot of investigation that that claim was untrue. So a lot of harm, not only financial harm, but also personal harm was affected by this. And this shows how important it is that you have a system of checks and balances, that there is accountability in the system. In, in our case, the government had to resign. Uh, we'll have elections that I must say were already planned in, in two weeks' time. But accountability uh, has become over the past 20 years in the Netherlands more and more of an issue. And one way to uh, make it easier for parliament to execute its task of oversight is to dedicate a special day uh, every year to scrutinizing all the reports of all the departments. Um, and this day is the third Wednesday in May. And in Dutch, it's called Gehakt Dag. Gehakt is the Dutch word for minced meat. So the idea being that if the government is not able to satisfy the oversight of parliament, uh, parliament will make minced meat of them. And in that process, the Auditor General um, plays a very important role. So every year, the Office of the Auditor General prepares for every government department an extra report. And I must say, and I can say this from my own experience, that this report is being feared for being critical and leaving no stone unturned. So why it's, of course, difficult for Parliament and parliamentarians who only have one assistant to play their role of oversight, I think it is possible to organize in such a way that indeed Parliament can be given teeth to do this role. And I yeah. hope that this afternoon and this workshop will contribute to that because in the end, um, accountability is not something which is good just for its own sake, but it's essential to ensure the fulfillment of the people's basic human rights and needs. So thank you very much um, for inviting me to be here. I'm proud to be a, uh, a partner of uh, IFA and I wish all of you a very productive and uh, pleasant afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. And thank you once again for the support that the Kingdom of the Netherlands has given to us for this project. Um, we did ask um, the chairman of our board, which is the Honorable President, uh, former President Khalema Mutlante, uh, to say a few words today. But he has so many heavy commitments that he was unable to be with us today. He did, however, send in uh, a few uh, pages of um, uh, what he would like to say today. And uh, I'm going to take a few minutes to read what he has sent to us. Program director, trustees and staff of the Institute for African Alternatives, esteemed members of the academia, business leaders, leaders of civil society formations, comrades, ladies and gentlemen. The Institute for African Alternatives has for more than three decades been a vanguard for critical thinking, political consciousness, dialogue and constructive analysis of South African and African socioeconomic and political issues. As an independent Pan-African Institute, the broad policy research and advocacy that, I, that IFA generates and facilitates is a clarion call to leaders from every sector of society and government to pause, think, reconsider, 
and then decide which path to take. And it is in the dissemination of such progressive views and alternative solutions that change agents can be empowered and positive, equitable, and inclusive change can be made. The launch of EPA's checks and balances, the Auditor General Project Report, is one such contribution to the development and construction of a humane and better managed South Africa for all. A document that not only deep dives into the crux of the challenges that face the financial management of South Africa, but a report that offers delicate scrutiny of the crucial relationships and volatile tensions between government departments and their oath of office to the constitution of the Republic of South Africa. These insights on the management of public funds, supply change agents, academics, activists, and indeed public representatives with an arsenal of knowledge that places them in a position to continue fighting for the people and strengthen our democracy. Program Director, it is the strength of our democracy that is being tested during these uncertain times as the world confronts COVID-19. And the scramble to find an equilibrium within the extreme disruptions caused by the pandemic dissects and reveals the caliber of our leaders and public representatives. To take courage, display conviction, and earn the confidence of the people are but a few steps in the eternal quest to strengthen democracy. A crusade that bears many moral pitfalls and finds even the best of us on the back end of a stumble. A consistent moral leader of our time, whose lifelong dedication to fighting justice, comrade Professor Ben Turok, was one among many who sacrificed their all to attain liberation and strengthen democracy. Professor Turok asked each and every one of us to re-examine whether what we are fed by the status quo is what we actually need and encouraged an ongoing criticism of passivity and of corrupt governance. He believed that self-enrichment and a departure from the strong moral values so eloquently captured in the preamble to the constitution of the Republic of South Africa are at the heart of government's failure to lead and service the people of South Africa. Professor Turok's work with understanding and advocacy of the constitution is the kind of alert activism that gives effect to the supreme law of our land and drives the agenda of strengthening constitutional democracy. Like Ifa and Professor Turok himself, our collective pursuit to promote and ensure our constitutional supremacy is one of the most important endeavors in maintaining and reinforcing constitutional democracy. Protecting the supremacy of the constitution is possible because in a constitutional democracy where power is properly shared by the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary, the courts are independent and subject only to the law and the constitution of the Republic itself. This doctrine of the separation of powers allows for checks and balances to ensure that the separate institutions are monitored and held accountable. When considering the checks and balances written into our constitution and the urgent need for just, transparent, efficient, and accountable management of public funds, Professor Turok was deeply concerned and vocal about the open-ended and perilous cycle that played out year after year between the Auditor General, government departments, the National Assembly and the Standing Committee on Public Accounts, SCOPA. An abysmal cycle that produced routinely bad reports with little or no accountability. 
EFAS checks and balances the Auditor General Project Report seeks to investigate and offer tangible solutions as to why and how this damaging cycle is perpetuated and what remedies can be put in place to ensure the implementation of the Auditor General's recommendations. In the search for concrete steps to improve the financial mismanagement of public funds and to propel democratic culture within our constitutional democracy, let us respond with this, within the spirit of Professor Ben Turok's ethical leadership, as he reminds us of our ongoing duty to apply our mind, audit our achievements, scrutinize our modes of operation, and continuously dialogue with each other. To continue this imperative dialogue and guide us through the questions, measures, questions, measures, and insights that emerge from the Auditor General Project Report, please join me as I invite and welcome Mr. Lawson Naidu, Executive Secretary of the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution to address us. Thank you. So thank you again to uh, our former president, Khalema Mutlanti, for those very encouraging words. So to introduce our keynote speaker now, of course, for people who are, whose ears are close to what goes on in the political sphere, Lawson Naidu is no stranger. He's the executive secretary uh, of the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution, and he's been there since 2010. He has 30 years of experience in political, parliamentary, business, and civil society sectors. He worked at the ANC office in the UK from 1987 to 1992, and he was special advisor to the Speaker of Parliament. He's a founding partner of the Paternoster Group, which is a political risk consultancy. He's also a trustee of the Momentum Medical Scheme and Canon Collins Education and Legal Assistance Trust. Lawson, the floor is over to you. Thank you for joining us today. <clears throat> Firstly, thank you very, very much, uh, Professor Muller, and thank you to uh, Ambassador Peters for your words earlier, and in his absence to former President Mutlante. Um, it's a, it's a great honor for me to be asked to, to speak at this uh, important occasion. And, uh, you know, I, I accepted the invitation readily because uh, prior to his death, Professor Ben Turok had, we had had some telephone conversations about this project. And he called me when he first had the idea and said, he's got this project that he's gonna be working on and he wants me to be involved in it. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away uh, soon after that, uh, those calls that we had. Um, but, you know, it's also, a, there's another reason for that, because uh, I, I see um, uh, uh, President Motlante has referred to the three decades of, of IFA. And uh, I, I go back as long as, as long as that in terms of my interactions with, uh, with Ben Churok. Uh, we were both in London at the same time in the, the late uh, 1980s. And uh, apart from other things, we used to regularly meet. Uh, we were both members of structures of the ANC, uh, the Regional Political Committee uh, in the UK. And we used to have our monthly meetings, uh, often at the IFA offices in London on, the, on Saturday mornings. And uh, Comrade Ben and I would gather there early on a Saturday morning and spend our days together. Um, so I go back a long way with Ben Chirok and uh, it's, for that reason also, it's an honor to be asked to speak here 
this afternoon to, to help launch this report. Uh, I'm not going to say much about the report because I, I think uh, others will do that. Um, but I want to use the opportunity really to talk about uh, the role of parliament in a constitutional democracy. Some of the issues that uh, President Motlanti has already raised in those remarks that you just read out. Uh, because I think it lies at, at the heart of the, the issue of accountability uh, uh, in South Africa. And I just want to quote from the founding provisions of the constitution and section 1D in particular which says that the Republic of South Africa is one sovereign democratic state founded on the following values. And then subparagraph D reads, universal adult suffrage, a national common voters role, regular elections, and a multi-party system of democratic government to ensure accountability, responsiveness, and openness. And it's those latter three principles of accountability, responsiveness, and openness that I think are key to creating a healthy, vibrant, and uh, accountable democracy. And you know the checks and balances that we speak of, and it's the title of this report, which I think is, is very appropriate, uh, because it is uh, our constitution is about a system of checks and balances uh, with, between the three arms of the state, the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. And it's how those, those uh, checks and balances work against each other that ensures the vibrancy and the health of any democratic society. And there's always a necessary tension between those three. And when there is such tension, it is actually a sign of a vibrant, healthy democracy. Uh, if there wasn't, then uh, I think we, would be, we should probably be even more concerned that all is not well. But having said that, I think in wanting to, to hone in on parliament uh, in the few minutes that I have, it's really, I think it's clear to us that that parliament has failed us, particularly in recent years. Uh, it has failed in its constitutional mandate to scrutinize and oversee the actions of the executive and organs of state. It has allowed, in the words of um, Ventura, rampant corruption to take place, something that troubled him during his, his years as an MP in parliament. It was anathema to him that members of his own party could be behaving in such a manner. And he expected that the institution of parliament could and should have been able to do more to stop that. But it proved to be impotent in the face of that state capture onslaught, particularly in recent years. And I think there are, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. There's been lots of studies. And I don't think that any of us, and as, as I think the authors of the report themselves say, in the research that they've done, uh, there's, you know, uh, there's nothing new that's been discovered or there are no new proposals. Uh, these are issues that people have grappled with over a long period of time. And I will come back in a moment to, to a report from 1999, which seems almost like a lifetime ago, uh, the Hugh Corder report on, on, uh, on oversight and accountability. Um, but I think, you know, there are, there are a number of issues. And I think, uh, you know, foremost amongst these for me is what I would refer to as the break, breakdown or uh, in trust or the trust deficit between political parties that are represented in, in, in Parliament. Or, and I think I'd be speaking, you know, really specifically about the National Assembly when I refer to Parliament. Um, uh, and, you know, that, it's that trust deficit that I think that has widened in recent years, 
uh, and we've seen it play out in, uh, in various different ways, with disruptions of plenary sessions of the National Assembly, uh, the so-called white shirts, the security officers of parliament coming onto the floor of the chamber to evict members of parliament. And those kinds of disruptions, I, I think, are, are evidence of the kind of breakdown in trust that there is. And when you have that breakdown in trust, the institution cannot function optimally, and it's certainly not in a position to execute that very important constitutional mandate of oversight and accountability. So for me, you know, that, that's a real, uh, a real problem that needs to be overcome. And I think all of the, the solutions that we all seek to find uh, need to, uh, need to um, be based on, on, on an understanding of that current toxic political environment that still exists in parliament, even in the sixth parliament uh, that we have now. And you know, CASAC has been involved in some of the in discussions around these internally. We've commissioned reports. We recently, well, recently made a, a detailed submission to the State Capture Commission of Inquiry around the role of Parliament uh, in this. And one of the issues that that we identified in a discussion and a brief report we issued, I think, five or six years ago now. Uh, was about how do you overcome this trust, trust deficit? And in most other democracies and other parliaments, you find that there's a set of customs or conventions that develop. Rules cannot regulate everything. Uh, parliament has a very elaborate set of rules, mm. which are, are absolutely fine. It has uh, adopted an oversight and um, accountability policy in 2004, I think it was. But all of these are meaningless documents unless you develop the practical mechanics of how you're going to implement that. And that's where I speak of these issues around customs and conventions that are necessary. And I think there's something to, there's a, something to be learned from the way that the Standing Committee on Public Accounts has operated over the years, because it, it stands out as one of those committees of parliament, perhaps the only one that has actually done its job. It's done what has been expected of it. It receives reports from the Auditor General. It scrutinizes them in great detail. It submits reports to the National Assembly. Uh, it does what it is mandated to do. And the frustration of people like Ben Chirok, of the former Attorney uh, Auditor General, uh, Kimi Makwetu, is that there is then no follow-up action. But to the extent that it is mandated, SCOPA does its work. So I think. You know, it would be worth having, having a deeper look at why it is that SCOPA has, is, has been able to function as well as it has, um, and, and really try to understand how those customs and conventions and the spirit of cooperation that exists across parties within that, uh, that committee uh, exists and how it endures. Obviously, one of the things that, um, that is germane to that is the fact that SCOPA is the only committee in Parliament that is chaired customarily by a member of the opposition. Um, in the Westminster tradition, it's the, uh, the main opposition party that does that. In South Africa, it's been different. Um, it's uh, almost always not been the, uh, uh, the, the official opposition, but some other opposition party currently, uh, Mr. Schlengwa from the IFP is chairing SCOPA. Previously, we've had uh, other members from the IFB. I remember uh, Gavin Woods in the 1990s uh, and so on. Um, 
So maybe it is that issue of having an opposition member as a, as a, as a chair of a committee. And this has been one of the proposals that was put forward uh, by CASAC in its submission to the Zondo Commission. Uh, and perhaps just to dwell momentarily on the Zondo Commission, is you will have been aware that there were an, uh, the Deputy Chief Justice received oral testimony from a number of individuals and organizations over the past three or four weeks, including CASAC, uh, um, um, the organization undoing tax abuse outer from Professor Hugh Calder, uh, Professor Richard Calland, and others, talking not to the fact specific uh, issues of what happened in parliamentary committees, but about the overall institutional arrangements and, and weaknesses. And therefore, I think we can expect that the Zondo Commission will make uh, some recommendations with regards to the function of, uh, mm -hmm. of Parliament and uh, what Parliament can do to strengthen its, its, uh, um, its mechanisms for oversight. Because I think what's clear from the rules, the policy and so on, the constitution, is that there is no systemic impediment to Parliament doing its job to hold the executive to account. Uh, it is a failure of political will to do so, and it's the insistence by the majority party of using its majority in a way to inhibit Parliament from carrying out its constitutional responsibilities. And when I say that, I'm referring specifically to issues around using the majority to stifle uh, uh, procedural issues. So to shut down debates, to say to uh, the Portfolio Committee on Transport or Public Enterprises, you can't have an investigation into CRASA or, Tran or Transnet or ESCOM. Um, you know, and I uh, make the point that, you know, in a democracy, the majority rules, of course. But if you use that power, or I would call it an abuse of power to stop debate from happening, if you have an open debate and the majority imposes its democratic will in terms of a policy decision or a substantive decision, I don't think anybody can have any uh, grievance about that. But it's when Parliament is stopped from doing its job, from, stopped from actually discussing the issue, then we have a significant problem. And I think that's one of the issues that I think has been highlighted uh, at the Zondo Commission. So in that regard, one of the rec uh, proposals we made is that Parliament should perhaps uh, uh, reconsider the issue of the uh, chairpersonship of committees and perhaps allocate committees on, a, on some sort of formula that members of opposition parties also get an opportunity, perhaps on a rotational basis, to chair committees. It, it would create an environment of, of a multi-party system, which is what the constitution speaks of, and, and will hopefully, uh, develop the spirit of, of cooperation amongst members of committees. And in that regard, I think it's also important uh, in terms of the presiding officers of the National Assembly, of Parliament as a whole, both houses. Uh, when I worked at Parliament in the, in the 1990s, when I was the special assistant to Premier Jinwala when she was speaker, uh, and I was there from 1994 to 99, but I know this practice endured for some time after that, is that there was always a at least one member of the opposition that was uh, had some role as a presiding officer. Uh, obviously, in the early days of the government of national unity, uh, Dr. Badra Ranchod was the deputy speaker. And then later we had uh, presiding officers um, who would sit in and, and chair plenary sessions of, of the National Assembly from other opposition parties. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, and that gave a sense that this was a, a parliament of the people. And it wasn't just a majority party dominated assembly. 
And I think that's something that we've lost now. All of the uh, members of the presidium or presiding officers come from the majority party at the moment. And therefore you have the sense, and that's, that's again, come back to the point about the breakdown of the trust deficit, because it's those kinds of things that lead to the, uh, um, to the breakdown of, of the trust uh, deficit in parliament. So those are the, you know, some of the things that I think uh, Parliament would need to reconsider. Uh, and then I want to end on this on this final point around, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, the, the uh, what is now the infamous Corder report, uh, which I'm very pleased to see uh, found its way to get some attention in the checks and balances report uh, that is being published today. And I think it's worth revisiting it, not, not because we must simply accept whole scale what uh, Professor Corder said over 20 years ago, but I think the analysis that went, went into that report and to say that, yes, these things are there. And even back in 99, it was evident that they weren't working as smoothly as they should. And that led Professor Corder and his team to make a, a proposal around a, a piece of legislation an Accountability Standards Act that would say to committees to parliament, the, this is the minimum that you need to do in order to exercise your oversight function. And this is what, this is what it means to scrutinize executive action and that of organs of state, and actually to spell it out. And, you know, we, we speak about the issue of accountability. Uh, and I think it's, it's germane, uh, perhaps in, in this discussion, where we're focusing on the issue of finances, of the Auditor General and, and SCOPA is, you know, the origin of the term is, to, is was about to account for money. And in the context of your checks and balances support, that's obviously uh, critical, but it has a broader meaning now about oversight and, you know, taking responsibility for actions, answering for things that you have done in a policy and uh, implementation uh, space. So I think it's worth revisiting the quarter report from that point of view to say, you know, perhaps we need to arm uh, members of parliament uh, with the legislative uh, um, safeguard of saying, this is uh, what the minimum that you need to do. And if your party tells you otherwise, you have a legislative mandate to do so. And, uh, uh, and, and that deals with the, with, with the party issue. So I, I certainly think that's something that we, we really need to, uh, need to consider. Now, obviously, um, the, the, the issues that are raised in all, of, all that I've said, and is also raised in the second set of proposals that you make in the checks and balances report is well, how do we improve uh, the character and quality of our elected representatives. And I'm not gonna go into detail around that, except to say that there will be some impact on that uh, with the new electoral system that we will need to have in place before the 2024 elections. We know that as, as a result of a judgment of the Constitutional Court in June last year, Parliament is now in the process of reviewing the electoral system to bring it into, to, um, amend the impugned provisions of the Electoral Act to, to make allowance for individual candidates to stand for election at national and provincial level. Uh, but perhaps this is an opportunity for Parliament to go further than simply to do what the court pointed out was unconstitutional and to actually have a whole scale review of the electoral system, which is something that's been on the agenda for of South Africa for 20 years now. We have the Fensale Slabber Task Team in 2002, uh, we had the recommendations of the independent panel on parliament in the late 2000s and then more recently uh, 
the high-level review panel, which was chaired by former President Atlante, which made its recommendations in 2017, and also recommended that we need to review the electoral system. So I think there's a there's a there's a, 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 a process that has led us up to this point, and hopefully we will grasp that that uh, that opportunity uh, and not shun it, and that we grasp it in a way that we create a, a an electoral system. Uh, that is just not just proportional and representative, but also enhances accountability. And I want to be very clear to, to make it absolutely clear. I'm not suggesting that a different electoral system would be would either lead to a different electoral outcome or will necessarily lead to greater and enhanced accountability. But it may give us a little bit more influence over the kinds of people that end up in parliament. And the reason I say that is that in the current uh, pure PR closed list system, you go to the, um, uh, when we go to vote, we vote for parties. Yes, parties publish lists ahead of the election, but it's, you know, it's a 200 member list because there's 200 vacancies in the National Assembly and nobody scrutinizes those lists in any detail. But if as one of the proposals on the table at the moment is that we move to a system, something along the lines of what was recommended by the majority in the Fonseil Slabitas team of a multi-member constituency of between three and seven uh, members per constituency. When you're dealing with, at, with between three and seven people and there's a list of 15 or 20 names on that list, and you would expect that each of those 20 people would have some sort of relationship with the area in which you're voting. So you would have some personal knowledge of the candidates that are standing there. And you know that can influence the uh, your decision and the way that you vote. So there's there are opportunities that I think that may may be opened up in that space. But as I say, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a panacea. And as the um, uh, late Auditor General uh, demanded of all of us to make our voices louder in this, and I think we as as broader South African society need our responsibility is to become a more engaged citizenry not just in the electoral process, but in parliamentary processes and governance processes, so that we, we become a proper participatory democracy and not a, a society that goes to the polls once every five years and spends the intervening five years complaining about the government that we have elected. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Lawson. As always, insightful and uh, concise and hard-hitting. Uh, you've given us much to ponder on. All right, well, now I'd like to uh, introduce the team uh, who actually worked on uh, the Auditor General report on checks and balances. And that is uh, Martin Nickel, uh, Moira Levy, and Bruce Kadani. Uh, all three of them are online. And I'm going to ask Martin if he can just say a few words about checks and balances, the report itself. Over to you, Martin. Thanks, thanks very much, Zanae. Um, the research was based uh, on interviews and on many people, many experts who gave their, their views, their experience, their judgments uh, to myself, um, Bruce and Moira um, during the last, in fact, it's now almost a whole, it's more than a year. The project was supposed to last for three months, but we got sidelined. The um, Research also relied heavily on the excellent records of the PMG, the Parliamentary Monitoring Group, and also on press reports. 
the press reports, the press covers parliament regularly and in great detail. And whatever its failings, parliament is indeed a national forum um, for the public consideration of issues, uh, whether this is done internally or by people commenting about what happens in parliament. Ben Chirac intended this project to include several public um, consultations. And we were ham hamstrung by COVID before we, but, but, but we managed two consultations. At, at the first, some of the um, participants asked, what do other countries do in the same situation when the findings of the Auditor General are ignored? In the democratic countries that we looked at, this doesn't happen. We couldn't find an, an, an Auditor General that was better than the Auditor General of South Africa. The Auditor Generals have an, an international organization. They call themselves Supreme Audit Institutions. And they have a sort of club where they share experiences with one another. South Africa is a leading member of this organization. But in other countries, when the Auditor General cries wolf, people run and they interrogate what is, what is alleged. They, will, they, they address it. But with us in South Africa, when the Auditor General cries wolf, Parliament and the, and the executive just turn a blind eye or parliament issues a strong statement against the wolf, or the executive asks if the wolf has ever been found guilty in a court of law. So we found it was very difficult to establish any international um, benchmark, if you like, for our research. And so we based it really on what Comrade Ben had said to us right at the start. Comrade Ben was interested in a parliamentary process, a process that would establish parliament's role as a check and a balance on the other two components of the constitution, the judiciary and the executive. Ben would hate the idea that the report that we're launching today marked the end. He didn't really want a report. He wanted a way forward for parliament. And I guess that's the challenge that's we're left with. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, Martin. All right, so we're at that point in the program where we can turn the floor over to all of, the, all of you who are participating. And uh, we ask you now to uh, either make comments or post questions uh, to any one of the um, members on the team of the IFA team. And also of course to Lawson in particular, if you if you feel uh, like doing so. Uh, I noticed that we also have Richard Callan, um, who's joined us. And um, I think we, Richard would enjoy uh, receiving uh, some comments as well. Um, so the floor is over to everybody who's, uh, who's online now. Please go ahead and raise your hand. <clears throat> Can you 
Gary Pinar. You may go ahead. Um, thank you very much. Um, I must apologize from the start that I've been in and out um, of the meeting because of a, a plumbing problem. Um, so I have missed some of um, some of the inputs and uh, I'm, I may therefore have missed the answer to, the, to this question. The, I've just had an opportunity to read the executive summary of the report and it, it mentions one admittedly controversial and difficult uh, solution. I'm not sure, first of all, whether or not this is an alternative solution or a complementary solution. Um, so if that could just be clarified, but this solution, uh, it's indicated that it would involve greater scrutiny over the internal workings of political parties. It does indeed sound sensitive and, and tricky. Um, has the research team come across a good example of, of where that um, kind of oversight works effectively? Um, and first of all, and then plays a role in, in addressing the kind of problem that we're confronting now um, that's identified in this report. Thank you. All right, would like to go. Martin, would you want to give that a try? Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose the, we haven't got any good examples of other countries where this has worked. The, the, the problem that we've noticed is that there have often been um, even legal challenges to the way that parties have carried out their internal business, whether it is on who they select as a um, representative or on the constitution of the political party. Because the, the difficulty is that once, once the political party has the opportunity to choose the person, there's very little scrutiny given of the the constitutional, the, the democratic um, functioning of that political party. So we're just suggesting that, that having a look at the constitutions of the parties and how they are applied in practice is something that would be useful in working out how it is that uh, parties decide on who is going to represent them on their lists. But it is a sensitive issue and we're not suggesting that there should be a, like an ideal political party constitution. Um, it, it, it's just an area where the, uh, we think that, that there can be interventions to reduce the amount of conflict that exists. Hmm. Awesome, did you wanna add anything to that at all? No. Right? Sorry, uh, not at this stage, thanks. Okay. Is there anyone else with a hand up? Comments, questions? Uh, Richard Cullen's got his hand up. I'll lower your hand now, Richard. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay, good. good afternoon, Richard. Welcome. 
Thank you, Zanod. Um, let me let me be um, constructive in um, responding to your invitation to join the conversation. I'm happy to try and do so. Um, let, let, let me make one brief remark, and that's about the future. I think we can all now, probably in this room, find a lot of consensus about the past and about what Lawson rightly describes as the failure of Parliament, the fact that Parliament failed to do what the Constitution requires of it and what is required of it um, in defence of very important principles of accountability uh, and uh, responsiveness in the executive arm of government. The question then is what to do about this. I think that, uh, uh, as Lawson rightly says, having been presented with quite a lot of material, uh, and I hope being one of the people who presented some of that material, that it was that it was um, useful. Judging by Deputy Chief Justice Zondo's response to the evidence, I think it, he was certainly very interested by this issue. And I think he was certainly, um, as he has been with a lot of the evidence recently, uh, very underwhelmed by what he was told by some of the representatives of the political parties that appeared in front of him. So I think he's going to identify very clearly the problem and the diagnosis. And he may well stick his um, neck out in terms of, of uh, possible prescription solutions. The question is then what? Um, and this applies, of course, to the whole of the Zondo Commission report when it, when it comes and when it lands. But for the group of us here today that are interested in Parliament, Parliament and interested in Parliament's ability to exercise meaningful uh, oversight over the executive, how are we going to work to help ensure that the recommendations of Zondo and the changes required in the convention and practice, which as, as Lawson rightly argued, is probably more important than the legal provisions, because the legal provisions are there. They're, they're abundantly clear. Uh, there's, no, there's no question, there's no ambiguity about them. In, in legal and constitutional terms, Parliament's role and, it, and its authority and its duty, all of that is tremendously clear. What is not clear is how to overcome the political in, in, inhibiting factors that have got in the way of that. And lastly, um, Chair, judging by the reaction, sad to say, of, of some significant political figures in response to the evidence on parliamentary's, Parliament's failure to exercise oversight during the era of state capture, I'm thinking particularly here, of course, of um, the Deputy Secretary General of the ANC. I think, I, I fear that uh, uh, Ben Torek would be uh, spinning in wherever place he has found himself now. Um, if he'd read that article by uh, Jesse Duarte in the newspaper. And that, that, her response and the response of others suggests that there is unlikely to be much enthusiasm for the sorts of shifts in political leadership culture and attitude to oversight. Mm -hmm. So that raises really profound and difficult question. How are we going to then get things done differently in the future? So I raised that question in the spirit of open debate here to see if others have got the answer, because I'm not sure I have, uh, but it's one we need to wrestle with. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Much appreciated. Does anyone want to respond to what uh, Richard has said? Uh, or some new comments, questions? Well, is that I Mark who's got his hand up? Okay. Thank you very much. Um, my question is following on what was uh, said before about the, uh, the election processes, um, the work by Fonseil Slavitt's commission and mention was made of a subsequent uh, work by um, 
ex-president uh, Motlante. Uh, my question is <clears throat> whether that, <clears throat> excuse me, whether that work um, is connected and whether there is follow on uh, where there's active debate in actually formulating a new process, because as we are saying, our, pro our problem is not the constitution, but it ac actually is the um, withdrawal of power from people into political parties with their own interests, which doesn't correlate with our constitution and with people's um, will, people's concern, democracy. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can, uh, if the panel can inform us um, what continuity of study in, in, in proposing a more practical way where the, the power rests with the people in democracy uh, and whether we can continue to, to, to study and debate and come up with answers that can uh, solve this problem so that people actually have a voice representation in parliament um, uh, rather than power resting within a, an elite who, who actually directs that power and it's not always in the interest of the people or the constitution. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Is there anyone who'd like to respond to those comments from Mark? Um, yes, if I may, uh, as a note. Um, well, let me start with that and then I just also want to come back to um, the challenge that Richard has posed to us as well. Uh, but on Mark's point, I mean, I think there is a process because as a result of the constitutional court judgment last year that I referred to earlier, Parliament has been given two years, so until June of 2022, uh, to amend the uh, Electoral Act. And the constitutional court in its judgment in that case last year said explicitly that the new electoral system, whatever it is, must be in place in time for the 2024 national and provincial elections. So there is a time frame to this. So that's the one part of the answer to Mark's question. The, uh, the other part of it is impossible to answer because what is that electoral system? If it is along the lines of what I suggested earlier, that it's a, it's a hybrid between a, a PR list system and a, a multi-member constituency system, which I would venture to say at this point is probably the likely outcome, that in itself is not going to uh, dilute the power that political parties play in our politics. So changing the electoral system is not going to uh, um, uh, change those power dynamics. Political parties are still going to be very strong. And uh, Richard made this point in, in a discussion with the Deputy Chief Justice when he was giving evidence to the Sunder Commission that even in a, uh, a pure constituency system such as in the UK, where you have the, a single member uh, attached to a constituency, the political parties hold vast sway over those uh, members of parliament, even though they are ele elected by a defined geographic constituency. So we must be cognizant of those factors. So changing the electoral, that's why I said earlier, changing the electoral system is not a silver bullet. It, it's what I, it is what I say is a, is a necessary, but a not, not a sufficient mechanism to extract greater accountability. But we must try and design a system that encourages greater participation. I mean, I think one of the big concerns we have in South Africa is that at the last election, less than 50% of eligible voters actually went out to vote. Registered, there are 
I don't know, 27 million registered voters, but there are 9 million South Africans who haven't even bothered to register. And of those 9 million, 6 million are young people aged between 18 and 29 who have opted out of the electoral system. And that should be a cause of concern for all of us. Um, just perhaps a, a brief point on, on what Richard said, and I think you know that is the key challenge. What do we do from here? We've got all these ideas that are floating around about how to make Parliament more effective, and you know the, I think the the fundamental challenge that we face is to convince Parliament itself, as an institution, as presiding officers, as political parties there, that there is a problem that they need to address, and they need to engage with fora like this in order to to come up with those solutions. So hopefully the uh, uh, Deputy Chief Justice Zonda's report will point out the shortcomings in, uh, in Parliament uh, in, in, in sufficient gravity to force Parliament to, to, to take that to heart. But, you know, again, one doesn't hold out much hope for that because in a series of recent judgments emanating from various courts, including the Constitutional Court in, real, in recent times, where the court has pointed out Parliament's shortcomings in the interpretation of its constitutional responsibilities, rules, etc. Parliament has pretty much done nothing to correct those defects that have been identified in uh, by the courts. So, the, the, for me, the, the the immediate challenge is to get Parliament to recognise there's a problem, and once they do so, we can mm -hmm. perhaps start engaging with them in terms of finding solutions. Thank you, Lawson. Um, if I may. Um, what if we had to consider uh, either an institutional mechanism or a procedure that would um, somehow compel Parliament to uh, augment hearings, let's say the very next week after the Auditor General's report is issued, where you just call up people who are mentioned in the Auditor General's report as not having uh, managed carefully uh, the funds that were given to them, either through wasteful and fruitless expenditure or irregular expenditure, et cetera, et cetera. Is anything like that possible? And I'm throwing the question wide open to anyone on uh, who's participating. Okay, while, while we think about that, the ethos, Can I just uh, ask a question? Yes, Mark. Okay. You know, just we, the reference in answer to my question was talking about that power would not necessarily diminish, even though you change the system. And I don't think that the power itself is the problem. We need power to be able to do good things. The problem I see is the lack of accountability to the electorate, to the people, to, and, and then you would want to persuade people that you're actually on the right track, that you're doing the right thing, so that you get elected again, or, or that your policy is supported. So it's the accountability that is lacking in our system, because we vote, and then, you know, whatever we are voting for is not necessarily listened to, and people can do a whole lot of other things. So the accountability is what we're looking for, so that we do get the kind of feedback you're suggesting, you know, to, to explain the decisions to um, people who are interested parties. Thank you. 
Right, there's also a hand up from Mr. Philip Barley. I'll, I'll let him make his comment while we think about, you know, while we consider all these uh, comments. Um, so, I'll, Mr. Philip Barley, I'll, I'll lower your hand. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, uh, my name is Philip Barley. Uh, Chairperson, first I want to congratulate uh, Aoife on uh, their research uh, and uh, their report, which is a manageable read. Uh, you don't find the reports these days who are that manageable to read. Uh, mm -hmm. Secondly, also to um, uh, congratulate uh, Lawson Naidu for his very succinct uh, contribution and uh, uh, as usual, it was um, well to the point. Uh, let me be quite forthright. Uh, I think there's also a deficit in leadership uh, because if we, we must actually learn from our mistakes and if we don't, if we don't uh, learn from our mistakes and if we don't expose those mistakes, we won't learn. Uh, and this applies to all organizations and institutions. Uh, so those who don't learn or don't learn uh, should in, in a way be taught some lessons uh, and lessons could be learned and serve as a warning and deterrent. But let me come back to an, a, a point uh, Lawson raised uh, when he spoke about the Zonda Commission and the submissions that were made at the Zonda Commission. Uh, he mentioned uh, a, a number of uh, one or two um, uh, um, uh, organizations uh, like OTA uh, and, and, and CASAC, and he mentioned uh, um, one or two academics, and I don't know of more people uh, from the outside uh, uh, also contributed to that. But, but, but the issue I don't want to make is that, you know, we need also to find a way uh, of, and it's critically important for providing and finding mechanisms for citizens to actively and fully participate in the democratic process. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that in the first parliament, uh, there was a division or section, uh, public education and public outreach, um, which was in fact headed by Al Karim that time, uh, where they made an, <coughs> an attempt, uh, an active attempt to involve citizens in, in parliament and teach parliament. So, so how can we, my question then is, how can we support the growth and deliverables of um, emerging community structures and similar historical organizational structures, uh, particularly those that showed some innovation and agility during the COVID-19 pandemic to be, to participate in the democratic process. And how we, mm. can we empower them to do that and, and, and strengthen and educate those people to position themselves to identify uh, rogue um, parliamentarians, uh, rogue members of the executive, uh, rogue public servants. So my, my question is, how can we begin to educate and strengthen and empower community structures uh, to participate fully in the democratic process? Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, Mr. Bali. Uh, yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> I don't know if there's someone who wants to take, uh, give that a try. Um, Lawson, can I just can I just comment here? This is Bruce Kadali from the yeah, no, sure. Go ahead. 
from the research team's point of view, and I'm not going to try to fully answer that question, but just, you know, because we're talking about the future and, and with reference to, to um, my research partner, Martin's uh, uh, reference to the early discussions with Ben Turok about this particular project and with our partners in the Netherlands, there was an agreement that the report is not in itself the project, that we have to to somehow take this project, um, you know, and take this report and, uh, and try to create some kind of reach, some kind of leverage uh, at, at, at the, the levels that we ourselves uh, identify. Um, of course, that was parliament itself, the executive, and then, of course, what Philip is referring to, empowering, getting public participation. So oh, I'm just briefly going to comment that we have something in the works and, and, and part of this project is for us to look at, you know, where does this report go? And, and we have a follow-up proposal, which would be from IFAS point of view, the little contribution we can make, you know, to that, to that, that actioning of a report such as this that is required. Um, so, and, and then that entails some of the, some strands of what's been brought up here, sort of comparative experience, um, getting some leaders, getting parliamentarians to share experiences with other international parliaments so that we can aid a sense of, you know, what can we do now? Um, there is the idea, you, you know, looking at creating coalitions and then as, as, as Mr. Bali says there, you know, the, the dynamic civic ac activity during COVID, how can we harness that? So we're also thinking uh, along those lines, um, of course. And then we also, also it is an election year. So, so we, we want to look at, at from an EFA point of view, what, what can we do to take the recommendations and the, and the, the outcomes from this, this, this report, you know, and, and, and create action. And, and we are in the process of, of devising uh, a project approach to, to, to that. So I'd, I'll leave that there. And that, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't, of course, answer Philip's huge question, um, but I'll, I'll leave that right there as a comment from the research team. Thank you, Bruce. Lawson, I think you wanted to respond to what Mr. Bali said. Yes, um, well, in a, in a small way, because uh, as Bruce has said, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, um, a big issue that, uh, that Philip Bali has raised uh, is about this dynamic interaction between um, Parliament and the electorate, uh, which is a similar issue to which Mark uh, raised earlier about how do we get more involved. So, you know, going back to um, what Philip spoke about, the uh, parliamentary initiative that was launched in the 1990s uh, under the then leadership of Alf Karim, and there, there is still a unit, I think, in Parliament called Taking Parliament to the People. But it's become a very formulaic uh, response. So committees go uh, to a particular community or area and do a sort of uh, uh, a set piece visit. And I'm not sure how much dynamic engagement there is in those processes. Uh, so they're difficult to do at scale, I would say, and you know, to reach all corners of the country. But what we do have in Parliament, and despite the electoral system that we have, uh, Parliament makes financial provision for to political parties to have constituency offices. So even though we don't elect people on the basis of geographic constituencies, Parliament gives political parties funds to uh, for MPs to be able to run constituency offices, which is supposed to be 
provide this connection between parliament and the people on the ground. Um, there are huge problems with this. So although vast sums of money are expended by parliament in handing money over to political parties for this purpose, I'm not sure what level of reporting there is from political parties back to parliament to say, this is what we've used the money for. These are the comments we've got from our constituency, uh, constituents, and these are the issues that we think parliament needs to, be, need to take up. And it's quite shocking that since the 19, 2019 general election, uh, and I was in a discussion with the, the parliamentary monitoring group just the other day, that we are not aware that uh, political parties have identified members and particular constituencies. So the money is still flowing from parliament, but we don't, no one has any idea how it's been spent by those political parties. And I think that's something that will have an impact once we, um, we, we amend the electoral system. Uh, but it's an area that I think we need to, we need to, you know, we haven't focused on and we perhaps need to focus on uh, more uh, in future. Thank you, Lawson. Is there anyone else who wanted to respond to what either Mark said or Mr. Bali said? Any other new questions or comments? If I may make one uh, one additional point, I think it was uh, you raised the issues and just uh, of how Parliament could do things differently. For example, mm. the reports of the Auditor General come out and so on. And I wanted to make this point earlier uh, in my opening, but omitted to do so. And that is about the, the manner in which committees exercise this oversight and how committee meetings are structured and run. So what we generally find uh, is a government department will come down, five or six people, they'll do a, a very glossy PowerPoint presentation, which will take 45 minutes or so. You know, either the minister or DG will be there to do that. And then you know, you'll get a, a, a round, a couple of rounds of questions and you'll get five or six questions at a time. And then you ask, the committee chair will ask the government representatives to respond. And then you'll get very generic answers to the questions that are posed. And I think what we need is, and I think it's alluded to in, in, in your report, is a sort of uh, an American style of questioning where right. you know, a political party right. is given five or seven minutes to engage with the uh, government delegation that is there. And so you're able to actually hone in on the issue. Right. Because otherwise exactly. you ask a series of questions and so you get very bland, generic answers that actually evades accountability. So you need to put, so if someone is, you know, is flagged in an AG report, right. the committee has the power to summon that person, to issue a subpoena for them to appear and then to actually directly question them. Exactly. And that, that's a power that committees have. Coming back to Richard's point earlier, the, the committees have all of these powers, they just don't use them. Thank you, that's the, exactly what I was, uh, what I had in mind was that kind of committee system, yeah. Okay, um, any other questions, comments? Um, Mr. Ambassador, would you have anything to add from your international experience and what you know what goes on in the Netherlands that 
a few pearls of wisdom that you can drop as we <laughs> as we try to wrap up? <laughs> yeah, well, um, happy to do so. Of course, um, uh, as was earlier said, uh, there's no silver bullet, and I think that unless there's political will to really uh, give political oversight teeth, it's difficult to get this uh, accountability improved. But you can, as Lawson uh, also said, uh, you can try to start with just things in practice that can help the process. For instance, in the Netherlands, I, I mentioned that the Auditor General every year will um, uh, write reports on every government department. The minister heading the department um, obliged to answer in writing. And also, he or she has to show how to rectify the shortcomings that the Auditor General has found. And it's even sort of what the Auditor General will do is to rank the shortcomings in kind of, let's say, this is a first degree shortcoming. You have to act on this immediately. For this, you have maybe six months to get your house in order. So that kind of procedures at least could help to, as you say, uh, to make sure that at least the executive has to respond. Mm. And then of course, it's again up to parliament whether you want to act on that, but at least you can make it difficult, more difficult for the executive not to respond and to just stick with uh, general uh, answers. But it's just uh, in no way of course saying that this recipe works uh, mm. in, in the South African context. In the Netherlands, it works. As I said, the Auditor General's reports are feared by ministers, by the government, and I think that's a good thing. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you very much. Uh, Martin, did you want to have uh, some closing comments, maybe? No. Thanks very much to all the participants. Okay. All right. Well, I think we've reached the point now where we can close our, our meeting for this afternoon. I really want to thank everybody who uh, participated uh, and for staying online for, for this long. Um, it looks like we had everybody who joined us from the beginning stayed on until the very end. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I also want to take the opportunity to thank the team, uh, Martin and Bruce and Moira in particular, and the rest of the staff at IFA for all the support they gave the team during this year, uh, and to everyone else who had any kind of input during this time. And once again, also to thank our partners from uh, the Netherlands Embassy for their support. Uh, we are definitely thinking about um, where we take this report from here. Um, we would want to see that we give it the momentum it deserves and try to make it as popular a piece of, um, of our political dialogue as we possibly can. Um, and we would really appreciate any comments, uh, suggestions that any of you can make um, over the next few weeks on how we should go about doing this. We'd really appreciate it. So once again, thank you everyone for participating. We really, um, uh, appreciate uh, the, uh, the comments that you made and the encouraging statements that we get, uh, we got from many of you. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you.